if we can empower citizens to go in and restore civil civil political discourse through some kind of effective counterspeech strategy, that's really exciting. And it kind of alleviates a lot of these like kind of censorship issues that we're seeing in the in the media right now, where you know people are getting banned, they're not being heard. That's like what counts as hate speech, what counts for getting banned. You kind of alleviate all these like ethical and legal concerns from platforms as well. And you just turn it back over to the citizens and say, like, here's some tools to counter this message. Greetings, humans, and welcome to Lefteris Ask Science edition number 21. I am Lefteris, and I want to find out what, how, and why scientists do what they do. In today's edition, hate speech in social media, counter hate speech, and how can you be civil on the internet. These are some of the things that occupy the minds of researchers like Dr. Joshua Garland and Dr. Mirta Galesic. With their colleagues, they created an algorithm that automatically identifies hate speech and they are now trying to figure out what is the most productive way to counter hate speech and restore civility in the discussions we have online. Before we go on with the show, if you enjoy listening to it, subscribe to the podcast and share it as it's the best way for the podcast to grow. Additionally, I have a weekly newsletter where I share my favorite news from the worlds of science and academia. I have small explanations and links to the research for anyone who wants to find out more. If you like that, go to the show notes and click that link to subscribe to the newsletter. Also, if you have any questions or suggestions, go ahead and follow me on Twitter at Lefteris underscore asks and email me at Lefteris at lefterisasks.com. Let's now meet Dr. Galesic and Dr. Garland. I'm Mirta Galesic. I'm a professor at the Santa Fe Institute. I'm Joshua Garland and I'm an Applied Complexity Fellow at the Santa Fe Institute. Now, we've all heard the term hate speech being mentioned either online or in a political discussion. But as with everything, when you're doing research, you have to be as specific as possible. So for academic purposes, what is the definition of hate speech and counter hate speech? When we talk about hate speech, um, we can talk about it in a more narrow sense as any insults, discrimination, intimidation of individuals based on their ethnicity, gender, religion, political beliefs, or supposed ethnicity, gender, religion, and so on. Uh, But uh, lately, in the last few years, uh, major social media platforms started to define it more broadly, which we think is is actually okay. And this is um, that also spreading harmful stereotypes and misinformation about the group. Uh, to incite fear about the group is also constitutes hate speech. It's not so. It's not just direct insult, but also spreading spreading lies basically about the group to make it scary to others. Um, and then when we talk about counter speech, this is one of the alternatives to hate speech, or one of the ways to try to uh, suppress it. And this is um, kind of citizen generated uh, response to hate speech. It's a where where users of online platforms respond to hateful content in order to stop it, to reduce its impact on the victim, to try to maybe convince the hater to stop doing it, but also in general to to increase the civility and, and the quality of the discussion. So these definitions are quite clear. Algorithms, however, work with logical operations. In one way or another, you need to identify mathematically and put a label in loads and loads of data in order to have a statistically significant number of examples which you can use to create an accurate algorithm. The traditional way of doing that is somebody sitting in front of the computer, 
reading thousands and thousands and millions of texts and classifying the speech as a member of one group or the other. As you can understand, that will be quite time consuming. But sometimes you can get quote unquote lucky. Sometimes the groups label themselves and say that I'm part of this team, I'm part of that team. And so when in our case, we got sort of lucky that there was these two groups in Germany where they were willing to label themselves. There was a group that had labeled themselves as being part of the hate group. And there was people that had labeled themselves as being part of the counter group. And so what we were able to do um, is collect the speech that they were generating, right? So they're generating all these examples for us really nicely. And the nice thing is that the people that were involved in the hate group were very dedicated to being in the hate group. And that was like their main mission on Twitter. Like very rarely were they tweeting about like getting fries with their friends. They were really just tweeting about like um, anti-immigration sentiment, about um, attacking immigrants, about attacking whatever it was they're doing. And then the counter group, you know, a lot of these people made accounts specifically for countering hate. There was, you know, a lot of times like not identified at all with their um, their private account or whatever. And so it was just account to come in and participate in counter speech. Um, and so we got really lucky that this gave us all of these utterances and really nice examples of um, hate and counter speech. And so, you know, the one way to look at this is like we just had like hundreds and hundreds of examples, actually millions of examples of is this a hot dog or is this not a hot dog? Is this a puppy? Is this not a puppy? But is it is this anti-immigration sentiment? Is this pro, you know, pro love everybody sentiment? You know, and like you start getting all this data and then we can build mathematical models of what does this kind of text look like? What are the patterns inside of this kind of text? And what are the patterns inside of this kind of text? Dr. Garland and Dr. Galesitz were lucky enough to come across this huge amount of data with groups of people on Twitter practicing hate speech and another group trying specifically to counter that sentiment. Now, my knowledge of mathematics is okay, but definitely not enough to understand how to build an algorithm that can automatically recognize hate speech or really can recognize anything. So just by luck, I had Dr. Garland on call that could actually explain pretty simply what is the thought process of constructing an algorithm like that. We use some fairly standard machine learning models to do this as a first pass. Um, we're now working on building some more sophisticated models that are, you know, a little more custom for what we're trying to do. But um, as a first pass, it's also, I think, often useful when you're modeling to do like, just what is the most basic you can do, right? Like get a baseline and then build from there. Like a lot of times I see a lot of people like, I've got a really complicated plot problem, I should do use a really complicated model. And that's not necessarily always the best thing. So we started with a fairly baseline. Um, and what we did was we built a, um, we used what's called a Doctivec classifier, or Doctivec um, embedding, coupled with a logistic regression classifier. Um, and so if we wanna like kind of pull that apart, um, the first part is a what's called a neural net. Um, and that neural net plays a game effectively to learn uh, the representation of the language. And what it tries to do is it, it plays a predictive game effectively. This is going to, this is going to brush some details under the rug, but, um, if you, if you want to get into the if you want to get into the weeds, there's some really nice mathematical papers, but the basic idea is that it plays a guessing game. And so if you think about, as you listen to me speak, because you understand English, you can kind of sort of predict the next words that I'm going to say. And, you know, if I say, fire, for example, then you could make some guesses what my next words are going to be, right? Like I might say truck, I might say man, 
you know, but it's like probably really unlikely that I'm going to say like Soviet Union. Um, but by the same accord, like, you know, um, if I say Donald, then depending on like the context, depending on who you're asking, like some people might say Trump, but, you know, my nieces might say duck. And so what that does is it allows you to have this like contextual representation that says that like, oh, when this person says Donald, they mostly say Trump. And so they they speak more politically. And when this person says Donald, they say duck more often. So they speak more like a niece, right? Or like, you know, uh, and, so, and so what that does is allows, it has this neural net that it gets really good at predicting what that kind of person is going to say next. And so the interesting thing about that is it gets this kind of conceptual understanding of the language, right? Because like, if I know that somehow fire and truck are really intimately related and Donald and Trump are really intimately related and Soviet and union are represented together, um, what that allows you to do is to start building up this like conceptual representation of the, of the language. And so what that allows us to do is take utterances of text, like a tweet and translate that tweet into a vector. Um, so just a list of numbers. And so we can take that text, translate it to a list of numbers. And then once we have a list of numbers, we really have this mathematical representation that we can start playing with. And so in our case, we had a 300 dimensional space. So we'd take a text um, and we'd map it into this 300 dimensional space. Um, and then what we can do is inside of that 300 dimensional space, we can start saying like, do things cluster in particular ways, right? Do like the way that hate haters speak map into one part of the space, the way that normal people speak are they in a different part of space is the counter people in a different part of space. If I say a particular word, does that automatically really like influence my vector to be in the hate group or in the counter group or just in the middle or things like that. And so what we can do is we can use basically this neural net that's like good at predicting what people are going to say. Um, and use that to basically map text into, um, into mathematical representation. Once I have a mathematical representation, then I can do classification. And the classification we did is logistic regression. Um, and that's effectively deriving what's called a decision boundary. Um, and, you know, again, brushing a lot of details under the rug, basically all you're saying is that like, hey, there's this big cluster up here and there's a big cluster up down here. And logistic regression gives you a way to just draw a line between the two. And then you're going to say that, like, if you fall on the one side of it, you're this group. If you fall on one side of it, you're this group. And then it gets a little bit more, you know, um, it can get a little more complicated where you can say, like, you can assign, like, probabilities. Like, the likelihood it's in this group is this. The likelihood it's in this group is that. And that's how you kind of mathematize text. Very, very generally skipping a lot of details. So... Hopefully this gives you enough context about how do researchers try to turn speech into mathematical representation. But again, as we talked about in the previous episode about fake news, these classifiers are not absolute. They give you a certain confidence that this text is part of one group or the other. But context matters, tone matters, and many other things that an algorithm has to consider. And what I found really interesting is that keywords for hate speech can take different forms as a particular example for Dr. Garland here shows. Not every single word is gonna be really mark you in this group or really mark you in that group. But there are specific words that are like good indicators, right? Like, um, and you kinda, you know, for example, uh, you know, one of the ones we had was like Gutmensch. And so that's one that the, um, that the hate group uses a lot. and it's an interesting kind of dog whistle because it just means you're a good person. It literally means good man. 
Um, and but what they say is like, oh, you're such a goodmensch. Like you're such a good person because like you just love all these immigrants and you're willing to forsake the land that you are from. You're willing to give up your own culture. You're willing to give up your own job and just let all these immigrants come in. Aren't you such a good person? And so like that's something that like they mark like people that are sympathetic to immigration as like you forsaking your people, right? And so like if that word appears most of the time, you know where that's going to come from. And so the algorithm can start learning these kind of patterns. But there is error, right? It's not it's not a like solved problem by any means. So as we mentioned before, they were using data generated by the German Twitter. I was wondering how did they come across the data and what was their initial thought for their research when they saw that they had that data? One of my like you know, closest collaborators and really good friends lives in Germany. He's lived in Germany his entire life. And he was really concerned with what was happening in Germany. And so there was this, um, during the like, you know, it's actually contentious, but you know, refugee crisis or whatever you want to call it that happened, started happening in 2015, where you had this massive influx of refugees um, into Europe. So that you have all these refugees pouring in. And then like, you started seeing this like shift in German culture away from, especially when uh, Angela Merkel said, um, yeah, we're just going to accept all these refugees. We're going to accept all these people. Uh, and they're like setting up all these camps in like cities and like all of a sudden all this like anti-immigration sentiment started growing and this nationalistic ideals started growing and people be started becoming much more nationalistic, which is very like very not German. Like if you've ever been to Germany, like they're very not nationalist. Like you don't see flags flying around. You don't see people saying like, I'd love to be German. You know, and a lot of because of like the impact that World War II had on their culture. Um, and so you start seeing this like growing thing about like being really proud to be German, about not wanting anybody but Germans in Germany. Um, and then there was the rise of a few nationalist parties like this, like anti-European Union, pro-nationalist. Like you saw this across a lot of Europe during the refugee crisis. But there was a particular party in Germany that started growing, um, getting a lot more power um, called the AFD which is the alternative for Deutschland or the alternative for Germany. There was this like anti-immigration, you know, arguably like kind of new Nazi party where um, a lot of the, they're kind of using the same symbolism, the same kind of speeches. Uh, but instead of, you know, it being um, Jewish people that they're against, they're against North African, Syrians, um, uh, Muslims, that's this kind of thing. Uh, and so my, uh, my good colleague reached out to me and said, Hey, there's this growing thing that's occurring. And he's also a machine learning expert. Um, and he said, and it's actually this really cool situation where, you know, we don't know what to do about it. Right. Like it's not clear that like censorship, for example, is going to solve hate speech. Um, it's actually probably not the case. And like, what can we do about it? And he said that there's this group that got started. Um, that's this counter speech group and this counter speech thing's kind of interesting. And it's a bunch of citizens who come along and they generate text to like combat the hate speech, right? Instead of like just starting like a flame war, they try to engage with it and say like, well, what you're saying, like you said that, you know, these, all of these babies were murdered by these immigrants. Like that's not really what happened, right? Like actually no babies were murdered um, or, you know, and they kind of like start contesting these um, issues. And he said, can we start quantifying it? Can we start thinking about it? And he had, at the, at the time it was available, there was a like a large, um, a large number of the hate accounts had been identified and a large number of the like counter speech groups have been identified. And so we were able to get the usernames and the IDs of like all these different people um, of actually thousands of, of members from each one of these groups. 
Um, and then what we could do is we could use the Twitter API to actually just start like reading everything that these people have ever said on Twitter and building up these massive um, corpus of hate and counter speech. The kind of necessary first step that we needed to accomplish at a minimum would be to identify hate and counter speech because we were really interested in is kind of what happened, right? Like what's happening to discourse over time in the United States, like everybody's like wildly polarized. It's like the left and the right. And within like one or two words that you say, you know, is that person on the left? Is that person on the right? And people hate each other on the other side. And it's like, you know, and in Germany, it's, you know, it's this very, like, very polarized situation where there's very pro, very anti-immigration. And what we're interested in is like, when did this shift happen? What happened? What was behind this shift? What caused this shift? And what can be done about it? Like, how do we restore civil discourse online? How do we restore some form of like norm normality within political discourse again? Um, and so that's kind of the end goal is we want to find like, is there like a cookbook where we can teach citizens how to counter hateful messages online? And that's like the very lofty goal that may or may not ever be accomplished, but that's, you know, that's science. Um, but a first step is like, can we even identify these things mathematically so that we can then look at these thousands of conversations and see what happened over time? The cookbook might not be ready yet, but the two researchers that I had the chance to talk to had a lot of experience in reading hate speech and counter hate speech. I was wondering, what are the different strategies of counter hate speech and has something worked better than something else? There are many different strategies that people use to, to try to counter hate, including some people would provide just facts and try to pro provide, you know, point to some logical contradictions. Others would joke or use sarcasm, sarcasm or irony. Others, and this has proven in qualitative studies to be uh, actually quite useful, is uh, try to empathize with the attacker, with the hater, and say, you know, I know where you're coming from. You know, I'm like you, but, you know, maybe we should reconsider this. Um, then there are others who would just insult or threaten the author or others who would support the victim and, you know, say, we are with you. Because usually uh, in the German Twitter, uh, the messages that we were uh, seeing were often directed against some publicly um, well-known immigrant figures. And so uh, people would kind of sympathize with them and, and give them support. And, the, uh, and the, 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 the answer to your question is we don't know yet what is uh, most effective. This is hopefully the next part of our study, um, because now we will actually need to change some undergrads in the basement to, <laughs> to make it uh, uh, like a, a training set, or we are actually there. There, there are services for this. So, but we need to uh, we need to create a training set where we would uh, have uh, enough tweets uh, categorizing these different uh, classes, so that we can then teach our algorithms to recognize that. Until then, we are we really don't know. We are just qualitatively seeing exactly what you are saying. So far, we were looking at you know, general effectiveness, if you wish, of counter speech. And here, too, it's very difficult to uh, draw any causal conclusions, of course, because the hate speech and counter speech do not ha happen in a vacuum. They happen in the context of the whole society. And German society went through a lot of turmoil in the last few years. They had elections in 2017 where this right-wing uh, AfD party uh, really took or like, really uh, gained like more uh, seats in the parliament, in various parliaments of the different states. Then we had very large protests from 2015 uh, when the immigrant crisis started. There were large protests in Germany. Um, then then this uh, organized hate speech group started in 2017. Then in 2000. 
2018, um, a large uh, counter, this counter speech group started, but this was in the context of also uh, real world protests, both pro-immigrant and anti-immigrant, uh, which really escalated kind of around that time. So it's difficult to make causal conclusions, but what we do see, you know, we're trying a little bit, so we, we kind of, it's like this big, you know, multi-dimensional object that we are kind of trying to, you know, trying to find reflections on the wall of it and trying to make a story. And so we look at many different indicators. For example, you know, what happens to the frequency of different kinds of speech after these organized groups occur, whether uh, within a particular conversation, more hate would produce even more hate or more counter speech, uh, how the intensity of hate speech, whether, it, whether it's better to be more intense in your hate or in your counter or less intense, and so we have an actually follow-up paper that's now in the review that explores these different characteristics. So, for example, we find that uh, once this organized hate group started in 2017, Reco Germanica, then hate became kind of more powerful. It really was powerful in suppressing counter speech and in provoking even more hate. And counter speech, if anything, because it was not organized and the hate group was organized, it actually provoked more hate. You know, a lonely person comes, idealistic, and say, oh, guys, don't fight. And I'm like, rah, <laughs> I come to this. But then after the organized counter speech group formed in 2018, then we see, you know, in, in these different indicators uh, that counter speech becomes more powerful. Now it suppresses hate more effectively and more and counter speech now leads to more counter speech. Whereas before, Counter speech not only led to more hate, but also led to less counter speech because others seeing the carnage and said, okay, I'm not even going to bother. Once you had several people coming together, then they become more effective. And so we see these glimpses. So for now we know that organization helps, that it's better to not come alone, but to come together with friends uh, and counter. Uh, but the next step is then to see exactly what strategies work. Sadly, Hate has existed way before social media. And in my complete ignorance about how social scientists work, I was wondering if there are data from previous social discourse that can be used in this context in order to further help their research. Yeah, so we are relying uh, a lot on, on bullying literature. You know, there is a lot of literature on bullying in schools or in bullying in workplaces. And how is that effectively countered? And so there are like several observations that actually translate. We see the same thing uh, when it comes to hate and counter speech online. One is that you know bullying bullies like audience, so they like to bully in the presence of supportive others. So this is where organized hate also is uh, kind of more productive, because everybody feels emboldened and they will you know they will they will feel that they can aggress more and they will fear the consequences less. Um, and then the counter speech also actually profits uh, from, uh, it works in a similar way as, um, as counter bullying. In schools, you know, if you're the, a lonely person, you're probably not, you're going to be afraid, or I, I would be afraid to stand to a powerful bully. But if there are several of us, then, uh, then I can feel, you know, strength in numbers. So that's kind of one line of theory, this bullying literature, and there is a lot of relationship there. But the other is the literature on social norms in general, and how do we perceive what is normal in the society and what's okay? And, uh, and here is again this uh, idea that, you know, if I see that somebody's uh, hating or bullying and nobody's standing up, then I might over time start thinking that maybe this is how it is, you know, this is just okay speech. Uh, this is how people communicate, and probably there is nothing we can do anyway. Maybe I can as well join. 
but if there is, you know, even a single voice, but especially there are several others saying that oh, this is not okay, this sends a super powerful message. So, and this kind of has an implication that even if you, even if you think it's futile, even if you think you're never going to change the mind of the hater, and maybe the victim is already in tears and crushed, and you, if you think that you're not going to uh, help the particular situation, it's so important to still stand up and, and say something because it sends the message to the observers. Uh, so when they are counting observances, I mean, we always count observances of different things in our environment and we try to make sense of what is okay, what's not okay, what's normal. And so when you're providing a voice, you're basically, you're counting, somebody counting, somebody's counting, somebody realizing, okay, the social norm is not as homogenous as I thought, there are other voices. The algorithm that the group has created for now works in German. Part of the Momentos task that they're doing is trying to adapt it to work in different languages because it's not just the individual words that matter. As we said, context and tone matter to this as well. You can't just say like, they said this word, it's, you know, uh, it's that they said it in this way, in this context, in this like nuanced way. Um, and so what we're hoping though is like, while the algorithm we built doesn't necessarily apply to their languages. What we're hoping is that the lessons we can learn from these two groups can be applied to other situations, right? And so, so for example, there's a group called I Am Here um, that's getting a lot of steam in a lot of different countries. It's a very, very large, very well-organized counter-speech group. Um, and they're wanting to know, like, what are effective strategies? And what we're hoping is that even though we can't take our automated classification system and apply it to these other languages, we can learn based on, like, all of these like hundreds of thousands of conversations we collected, what was it that was effective that they did? What was ineffective? You can take those lessons and then give those to counter speech groups so that they can understand in your own language, in your own context, what can you understand? And that's kind of one of the really beautiful things about counter speech actually is that, um, you know, these automated classification algorithms, like you need one for German, you need one for French, you need one for English. And it's very specific to the situation. It's very like nuanced, but people, have a very good understanding of nuance and sarcasm and these kind of things and understanding the context. Um, whereas computers have a lot harder time with that. And so if we can empower citizens to go in and restore civil civil political discourse through some kind of effective counter speech strategy, that's really exciting. And it kind of alleviates a lot of these like kind of censorship issues that we're seeing in the in the media right now, where you know people are getting banned, they're not being heard. That's like what counts as hate speech, what counts for getting banned. You kind of alleviate all these like ethical and legal concerns from platforms as well. And you just turn it back over to the citizens and say like, here's some tools to counter this message or counter this narrative. Um, and you know, hopefully that's an effective strategy and we'll have to see how that plays out. One of the bigger picture discussion we had was about having civil discourse, not just online, but in our day-to-day -day lives. I'm pretty sure people that are listening to this right now will find all sorts of different names to call us in order to just dismiss what we're saying. However, these are the products of many years of research and millions and millions and millions of data points. I wanted to pick the brains of Dr. Garland and Dr. Galesitz on how do you talk with someone that just dismisses that? I think this is a real problem. I think that especially with all of the like myths and disinformation that's kind of just this toxic sludge that's, you know, polluted all the minds of the people in the world it's really hard to have discussions anymore. It's really hard to re-engage because, you know, you, um, everybody has a different set of facts and like, it's this kind of like weird Orwellian thing where like you talk to someone and their entire reality is something that's 
that you can't even grasp onto because you know they think that it's this like crazy QAnon conspiracy that you know the left are eating babies or whatever they think they're doing, um, and and I don't even know how to engage in that. Like, and then you say, well, like here's you know here's a bunch of articles that say that like the Clintons don't actually eat children, and they're like, yeah, well that's what the left wants you to think. Like that's what the left like that's what all of your corrupt things and like you know you can't even engage anymore. And I don't know. It, it does scare me and, and it does worry me that we become the society, um, you know, especially in the U.S. And I don't know how it is in other countries, um, but especially in the U.S., it's incredibly polarized to the point where, like, you just don't talk to the left or you don't talk to the right if you're part of the other team. And that's not OK. That's not how you that's just not I mean, that's not the way to, like, learn things. That's not the way to be open to things. Um, and, you know, I think that. And I, and I hope that we can come to some kind of conclusion, but I think much more fundamental things need to happen to our society around misinformation before we have any, any hopes of kind of coming back together as, as a people and being able to participate in discourse. Um, and, you know, I, I don't leave my house very much because of COVID, let alone the country. And so I'm hoping in the last year that the rest of the world hasn't got as bad as the U S but, um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. But I think it's a real concern. I don't know what Mirta thinks about this, but. Oh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a real, I mean, it's a tricky issue. I mean, one can think of, uh, so in, in our work at the Santa Fe Institute, we, we think of everything as a complex system. And so when you think of beliefs that people have, you can consider it as a kind of complex system, as a network of beliefs that people have. So, you know, you can have a certain, you know, there are some central beliefs, some religion, political identity, and then there are various other fringe beliefs, you know, my opinion about gardening or sports. And so somehow the trick is to find a way to connect my value system to your value system so that we can map somewhere. And so that, you know, maybe we differ on, on eating babies and who eats them, but maybe we agree on something else. Maybe we love gardening whatever, knitting, or whatever people like, or maybe we are afraid of similar thing. And maybe we are really concerned about, I mean, of course, we are really concerned about the future of our country or something. So we have some shared concerns, uh, beliefs, values with every human. So imagine that, you know, you have a, a, a nice uh, a neighbor who is actually a QAnon supporter, but also she makes a wonderful apple pie and you, you know, exchange tips about gardening. You know, that's an entry. So you found something that you can connect on. It is likely that she will listen to you more after you re after she realizes that you're also a person, a human like herself, and that you know she can maybe start trusting you on some issues than if you are just an unknown person on online. So somehow we need to find a way to connect better, to find ways to maybe you know we are we have this strong political divide, but maybe if we could find a way to connect as a society on some other levels that would increase the overall trust towards each other that might help with also these contentious issues. Okay, here's a fun fact. But you're from Greece, so you know. I mean, in Europe, uh, I always think that America should have it. In Europe, there's this Eurovision Song Contest. I love Eurovision Song Contest. I think America should have Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, it's a super, like, it's a harmless thing where different nations come together and do some super silly stuff. And, you know, there is some tension, a little bit aggression in a very positive way, in a mostly positive way. There is some competition. You learn something about other cultures. There is something to talk about besides, you know, who is on the left or the right. Somehow it seems to me that 
societies could really engage in more of these, let's just do stupid fun stuff all together. Let's kind of find other goals than uniting behind you know, a particular flag. Let's find other flags that we can work together on. And through that, we might somehow establish you know, more, uh, more similar opinions on maybe more important topics. So, yeah, who knows? Maybe the solution to all misinformation and hate speech is the Eurovision Song Contest. I know, I am as surprised as you are. I really hope for those that listen to this episode, one of the takeaways is to just be a bit more empathetic to one another. Some people have horrible beliefs, for sure, but there are many different reasons why would someone believe that. Not everyone is just evil. And if you're an undergrad or a researcher, Hopefully this episode gave you a peek about how it is to work in a real-world problem like this. That's it for another edition of Lefteris Ask Science. I'd like to thank Dr. Galesic and Dr. Garland for their time, and I hope they can come up with a recipe book so that we can restore civil discourse online. And thank you for sticking around until the end. In the show notes, you'll find ways that you can support me in doing this show. One easy way you can support me is by just sharing this episode with a friend. I really appreciate it. Until we meet again, take care keep learning, and as always, be kind.